you'll turn in our Bibles to Leviticus chapter 23. Now, we were uh, working through yesterday afternoon the uh, value of what we call tithes, and that wasn't a word we came up with. We actually uh, got that word from Romans chapter 5, and Paul the Apostle uh, said that Adam was a type of him who was to come, and so Adam uh, was declared by the Apostle Paul to be a type of Christ. Um, then we moved from there, and we uh, saw the same word uh, used, uh, translated different in our English Bible, but the same word in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the word was examples, and that all of the events re recorded for us in Israel's history, um, now it wasn't all their events, of course, but all the events that were recorded for us, the Apostle Paul says twice in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that these were types or examples for us. And um, the Apostle there uh, made the conclusion that we could look at um, these uh, events in their life and uh, we could learn for our own walk, right? That there is a, uh, just like they had enemies, we have an enemy. And by looking at history, uh, the history of God's uh, chosen people, Israel, we could learn from them. They were types or examples. Uh, then we uh, were reminded, we didn't read it in Acts chapter 7, but in Acts chapter 7, Luke, a good friend of the Apostle Paul, tells us that um, the tabernacle was a type. It also was an example. And so we could uh, look at the tabernacle and um, see how this reminded us of Christ. Um, we had from Hebrews chapter uh, 5 and 6 that the uh, spiritual immaturity that was in the Apostle Paul's day was actually because uh, the Christians didn't understand about um, the types from the Old Testament. He challenged them, you remember, on the, the account of Melchizedek, and because uh, they hadn't... Um, maybe done much study in the story of Melchizedek and hadn't seen the spiritual correlation uh, to the eternal priesthood of the Lord Jesus. Paul said he was actually restricted in being able to really open the word of God to them. Uh, we learned from after that from the uh, gospel of Matthew that, hey, the types are important to God, right? We saw that, that at that exact moment in time, and in eternity, when the Lord Jesus Christ bowed his head and gave up his spirit, uh, that the Father from heaven rent the veil in two from top to bottom. And the veil, we learn from the book of Hebrews, is a type of his flesh. That's what it says. And so types were important to God. Then we learned from, uh, from the Old Testament that, in fact, uh, Moses marring God's types. This was the reason he was not allowed entrance into the promised land, because he marred uh, that picture of the rock, you remember in anger, he smote the rock twice, and God's command was to simply to speak to the rock, not the rock to be smitten twice. Uh, and so the importance of types to God. We uh, were reminded that uh, John himself, the gospel writer John, was a student of the types, that he, he saw how these things tied together. Uh, we, we saw that he tied his book to Genesis, uh, tied it to the seven days of creation. We saw this great number seven uh, 
um, you know that uh, it was John's favorite number, but it was also a favorite number of the scriptures. There's lots of sevens, and uh, in fact, the passage we're going to read this morning, uh, Leviticus chapter 23, is the uh, what's referred to as the seven feasts of Jehovah, right? The seven feasts of the Lord, and um, you know that's interesting. You know, when you turn to the New Testament and and um, Luke mentions them in his gospel. Uh, Luke talks about the, the feast, but no longer, uh, no longer are they the feast of Jehovah. They've actually become the feast of the Jews. And so what's the distinction? Well, what had started out, what had started out as a spiritual exercise had become just simply formal. And uh, we know from our own experience that, that um, often that's the, sadly, not the progression, but the digression of spirituality. Oftentimes this thing winds down and what started out as something vibrant and living can become dead and formal. And so uh, that's what seemed to happen uh, sadly for Israel. So what was the Feast of Jehovah became the Feast of the Jews. Um, hey, we were reminded of this uh, book or we thought about this book by Alwood McQuaid. He says that all seven feasts from Leviticus chapter 23 are talked about in John's gospel, right? Um, that's uh, interesting. Uh, we were reminded of the number seven, right? That uh, we already said that the seven feasts of Jehovah, all the sevens in John's gospel. Well, um, some have from the past ably said that, that um, you know, if we want to know what God's doing on, in the world, uh, his ongoing timetable, and we do, uh, we live in, in in trying and difficult times, and so we want to we want to understand what's happening in the world. We want to be able, in the language of David, to serve our own generations well. Uh, you know, so those from the past have ably said that if we want to understand um, what God is doing, there are three sections of Scripture that we need to understand. The first is the seven feasts of Jehovah. The second section is in Matthew chapter 13. In Matthew chapter 13, it's the uh, seven parables of the kingdom. And then lastly, Revelation 2 and 3, the uh, seven churches of the Revelation. So three, uh, John was pointing out to me this morning what number of three, the significance, what was it? Is John still here or did he go home? What was three, John, you were saying? You, what did he say, Mike? I can't hear him either. Union, union, unity. And so, of course, um, well, we think, hey, that's perfectly manifested. That's perfectly manifested in the Trinity, right? Union or unity. God is three in one, one in purpose, three distinct persons, but one in purpose, unity. Uh, then um, uh, John showed us that, or told me, um, that the three and uh, the four beside it, that that's always the way the number seven is divided, four and three. What was four, John? It's a good time now. World, okay, okay. So uh, you read through these books on numerology, and there's always some discrepancy, but the point is that numbers do exist in Scripture, and there is this unity of thought. Well, Interestingly enough, that you think of four and three, that um, 
that the seven parables of the kingdom that divide into four, or sorry, the seven uh, feasts of Jehovah divide four and three. Hey, the seven parables of the kingdom, hey, they divide four and three, right? Actually, the first four are told to the multitude, and then it says the Lord Jesus called his disciples into the house and told the last three. Uh, and so we would see that actually, too, if we were to look at the seven churches of the Revelation. We're not going to, but we see that division here. So let's... Um, Let's just work through Leviticus chapter 23, and then we're going to see later in the next session how this helps us, practically speaking, to even understand uh, what might be perceived as obscure um, doctrines of the New Testament. So uh, we want to begin um, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, The feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations, these are my feasts. Um, whatever else this is, whatever else this is, this is a look into the heart of God. Hey, make no mistake about it. Um, the heart of God is connected to the corporate gatherings of his people. Hey, God is interested in individuals. We saw that yesterday, that God in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ is saving the world one person at a time, one individual at a time. But God is interested in the corporate gatherings of his people. What's the value of the corporate gathering of his people? Well, amongst other things, it's this idea of unity. And so the, the New Testament goes to great lengths to emphasize um, our unity together. They know that it takes all of us in unity to reflect um, the Lord Jesus. Not one believer can do that. So this is why you, you read these stories in the Old Testament of these men who are types, not just Adam, but others, uh, that none of them are perfect. Right? The Bible's honest. None of these men are perfect, but in every, in unique ways, or in, in little unique ways, each of them, at some level, manifests something of the character of the Lord Jesus. Right? And so, um, you know, we, we have that. We were... Um, you know, uh, as our brothers were sharing in the in the the morning meeting this morning, I was thinking of um, reminded of uh, David as we were reminded of this throne of grace that we can uh, uh, come before and and um, and experience grace to help in the in the nick of time. And that's the the translation of the word: find grace to help in the nick of uh, time. Uh, you know, what a privilege to uh, approach the throne of grace. Uh, what a privilege to be reminded that that the Lord is a is a God of grace. Uh, you know, this is reflected in David's life. You know, David was anointed the king of Israel. Do you remember where chronologically? I mean, this is this is rather profound when you think about it. Um, you remember when um, you know David went down into the valley of Elah in First Samuel chapter seventeen. You remember you remember what. Um, uh, people said about him. Remember Saul? Saul was a, a large man. He's head and shoulders above everybody else. Saul says, uh, who is this boy? Just a little lad. I mean, Goliath's, Goliath's, uh, Goliath's estimation of him was, um, what am I, a dog that you send a boy to fight against me with sticks and stones? We say, well, that was the world's estimation of him, but what was God's estimation of David in the Valley of Elah? Hey, you know who he was? He was the anointed king of Israel. 
he was actually anointed in the chapter previous to 1 Samuel 17. So, hey, you know, this is a wonderful picture of, um, hey, of the Lord Jesus. Hey, the world's estimation of him is low, right? I mean, uh, hey, we see that. I mean, this is not, this is anywhere. This, this what we witness here is anywhere in North America. Hey, most people, most people, sadly, are not in the church fellowship today. Uh, and that's the same in Canada. You know that, hey, the churches uh, gather to the person of the Lord Jesus. They're small, uh, small numbers. And so people's estimation of them, uh, it's not very high. But listen, there is a coming day when they will realize. And so here's David down into the Valley of Elah uh, as the anointed king of Israel. And you have this long process of him finally coming to the throne. Along the way, he meets all these people and develops all these relationships. Uh, 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 Saul's son Jonathan's heart is knit. He falls in love with David. Um, and so this, this long process, he finally comes to the throne, and it's not, uh, he doesn't come to the throne of all of Israel until uh, 2 Samuel chapter 9. He's actually already served um, seven years, uh, seven years for uh, two and a half tribes. And so he finally comes to power, it says. Everything is under his authority. And you know what his first act is? Uh, his first act is to um, fulfill a covenant, a promise that he'd made to Jonathan, Jonathan years before. To Jonathan, uh, Jonathan came to him and said, Hey, David, when you come to the throne, which I know you're going to, hey, bring me into your kingdom. Let me sit with you on the right hand. And so when David finally come to power, he says this. He said, is there anybody of the household of David whom I can show uh, kindness or the grace of God to for Jonathan's sake? And so there's this man. You remember Mephibosheth who's lame in his feet. And so Mephibosheth finally comes before David. And um, David uh, gives him all of Saul's property and all of Saul's children's property. So in a, in a uh, millisecond of time, uh, in just a, the flash of the twinkling of an eye, Mephibosheth goes from being a, blind, or a, a lame beggar to inherently rich, a king's ransom. And then the next word is a word of contrast. It says, but. And so in contrast to what he'd, um, uh, uh, David had just poured out to Mephibosheth, it says, but. He says, Mephibosheth shall sit at my table continually. So he fulfilled the covenant that he promised, the promise he made to Jonathan, but he went beyond that. You know what he did? He brought Mephibosheth into his family. Hey, there's a richness that we all as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ enjoy, right? Uh, his inheritance, the inheritance of Christ is shared with us. And um, we rejoice in that. But, hey, we're also in his family. And, um, hey, that, that money can't buy that. You could have a king's ransom, but money, money can't buy being in his family. And so these men, in various ways, picture. So the corporate gathering, that's Leviticus chapter 23. So uh, the first feast, feast number one, we want to try and maybe in our minds keep a, a chart just so we've got this worked out. Uh, verse 4 says, these are the feasts of the Lord, holy, holy convocations which you shall proclaim at their appointed times. On the 14th day of the first month at twilight is the Lord's Passover, 
on the 15th day of the same month as the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Okay? Um, and on the 15th day of the same month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread to the Lord. Seven days you must eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall have a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it, but you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord for seven days. The seventh day shall be a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work in it. So we have seven feasts. Uh, number one and number seven both last for seven days. Okay, so the first that lasts for seven days are, are connected to number one. The Passover is the first one, and so connected to the Passover is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Okay, so we get that from um, way back in Exodus 12. Uh, you know, we see this easily pictured, uh, you know, this idea that when uh, on the 14th day the lamb was slain, uh, on the 14th day the lamb was slain, and then uh, the next day, from the 15th day onward, they uh, participated in the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And so the point of that was that all the leaven was put out of the house, and in that period of time they would feed on the lamb. Well. The New Testament doctrine is the equivalent of that. You know, leaven, of course, always represent, represents that which defiles or that which is evil. So the leaven is put out, and the children of Israel were to feed on the lamb. Well, we were reminded yesterday of the, the need to feed on the word of God. But, you know, the other side of that is the putting off. You know, this is what Paul takes up in Ephesians chapter 4. You know, it's not just putting on Christ. To put on Christ, Paul says you actually have to put something off, right? So, so he says, um, do you remember a uh, couple of the examples he uses uh, uh, in Ephesians 4? He says, um, let him who stole steal no more. But rather, now he says, you don't just put your hands in your pocket and don't steal. Actually, you're to work with your hands that you might have something to give. And so it's the putting off and the putting on. Uh, he says it's not just you don't need to say unkind words, right? He says it's not just the words you're not supposed to say. Actually, he says use your tongue for edifying and for building up, right? And so it's this idea of the putting off, the putting on. Well, we, we see that pictured here in, in right in the very beginning of the Feast of Jehovah. So the Passover, uh, which no question which no question has been fulfilled, right? I mean, we can think of a verse in the New Testament that tells us the Passover is already being fulfilled, right? Who's got that? Does anybody know? Uh, let's just make sure we get that so we see that the Passover is being fulfilled. I'm going to say uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, maybe. Yes, is that my mic making that noise? What do we need? What do we need? Is that is that just hide it in my jacket? Okay. Uh, it's First Corinthians chapter five. Um, and look at this, verse seven. Therefore, or let's read read verse six. First Corinthians chapter five. He says, "Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore, purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you are truly uh, unleavened." For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And so again, this idea of the putting off 
and the putting on. But the point that we want to make or make sure we understand is that, um, that the Passover has been fulfilled, okay? Uh, we would suggest that the uh, Feast of Unleavened Bread is this ongoing experience. Is that better, Ed? Does that make a difference? Does that make a difference? Is it better? The wind? Maybe? Okay. So, um, I guess by way of passing, we want to we want to make sure that, that um, uh, you know, yesterday we tried to emphasize the accuracy of the study of Scripture. You know, there's value in accurately studying Scripture. You know, that, uh, that uh, numbers, uh, numbers uh, validate uh, Scripture for sure. We see that all the time. But, you know, dates do too. That, that, that the Passover, uh, it was fulfilled on a specific date. Um, you know, it says that uh, in Exodus 12, when you read Exodus 12, um, when you read Exodus 12, it was the 14th day, right, that the lamb was taken. And so, well, actually, the lamb was taken on the 10th day, chosen from the flock. On the 14th day, it was, uh, it was slain, and its blood was applied. On the 15th day, um, they left, right? We get that from Numbers chapter uh, 33. And... Um, and so they would have traveled, uh, we, we suggest they would have traveled on the 15th, the 16th. They had three camping spots, and so 15, 16, and the night of the 17th. Now, we also remember that, that um, uh, we always think of things as in the terms of day and night, you know, day and night, day and night. But is that biblical thinking? No, biblical thinking is actually night and day, right? That's how it is in Genesis chapter 1. It's night and day, the night and the day were the first. And so sometimes we think of um, day and night, day and night, day and night. But uh, again, this is actually proof that, that, um, that uh, you know, our thinking is often upside down, right? It's backwards. Uh, as we think about ourselves as a, uh, a person, I'm, I'm body, soul, and spirit, right? Is that, is that right? Body, soul, and spirit? Is that right, Keith? Okay, but scripture, actually only one time puts the three together like that, and how does it do it? Spirit, soul, body. So again, uh, our thinking needs to be changed and, and formed, and that's the point of Romans chapter 1, right? Or sorry, Romans chapter 12. Uh, our minds being conformed or transformed to scriptural thinking. And so uh, the dates. So we have um, 14... Uh, and so 15, we get from Numbers 33, they left three camping spots, so 15, 16, 17. So the night of the 17th would have been Saturday night. Uh, Saturday night, uh, the Red Sea opened for the children of Israel, and they would have went through the Red Sea. And so early Sunday morning, early Sunday morning of the 17th, um, they would have been on resurrection ground. Hey, what day did the ark come to rest? Do you remember? It actually gives you the date back in Genesis. You say, um, it came to rest on the 17th day of the seventh month. You say, well, okay, but this was the first month. Well, actually, no. Do you remember it was changed to the first month? It was actually the seventh month, Abib, the month of Abib in Exodus 12. But remember, it was changed. The Lord changed it. He said, this month shall be the first month of the year for you. And so, hey, you read through, uh, Israel has two calendars. They have their, their religious or their ceremonial calendar, and then they have an actual calendar. And so, 
Uh, and so when we talk about dates, uh, the ark came to rest in the first month, which would have became the first month in the 17th day. Hey, Israel passed over resurrection, uh, passed through the Red Sea, and we're on resurrection ground on Sunday the 17th. Uh, what day do you think the Lord Jesus rose from the dead? Hey, it was the exact same day. Sunday morning, while it was yet dark, he'd already risen when they got to the tomb. And so God's timing on these things is, is perfect. You know, it fits. And so... Um, the Passover, uh, we see that already being fulfilled. Uh, we have that in 1 Corinthians 5, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the continuation. Then, um, verse 9 says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land which I give you and reap its harvest, then you shall bring a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. He shall wave the sheaf before the Lord to be accepted on your behalf. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it, and you shall offer on that day when you wave the sheaf a male lamb of the first year without blemish as a burnt offering to the Lord. It is a grain offering, or sorry, its grain offering shall be two tenths of an eaf of fine flour mixed with oil an offering made by fire to the Lord for a sweet aroma, and its drink offering shall be of wine, one-fourth of a hin. You shall eat neither bread nor parched grain nor fresh grain until the same day that you have brought an offering to your God. It shall be a statue forever throughout your generations and all your dwellings. And so um, what day did this happen, Feast of First Fruits? What day would we call it? Okay, I guess we, we need to make sure we, um, we're reminded that, that Israel's day of worship was the Saturday, right? That was their day of worship. Um, you know, that, that their week, their week built up, okay? Their week built up to their day of worship. So they went through all their week. And then on the seventh day, which was the Sabbath for them, the last day of the week, that was their day of worship. Hey, um, that was the old covenant. You know, we remember the Lord this morning. And so uh, we gather uh, to, the, to the Lord Jesus. Uh, you know, the Lord's Supper, amongst other things, um, you know, whatever else it is, uh, and it's lots, uh, it's a picture or a reminder of the new covenant. Okay, so you know in the Old Testament it was a building up to the seventh day. In the New Testament, in the new covenant, it's, 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 a, it's a working out from. You know, so actually on the first day of the week it makes total sense. On the first day of the week, because the old covenant was broken, that's why it makes perfect sense that on the first day of the week we come together back to our foundation. You know that everything we have in the Christian life it's not a working out from, it's, or sorry, it's not a working out to, but a working out from, this idea of moving forward from our foundation, right? This, this principle. And so we ask, what day did this happen? What day was the Feast of first fruits? It was the day after the Sabbath, right? That's what it says. It says, um, uh, when you, let me see here. Uh, Verse 11, he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord to be accepted on your behalf on the day after the Sabbath. So what day would that be? That would be Sunday. 
So the Feast of First Fruits was celebrated on Sunday. Well, what's the Feast of First Fruits a picture of? Again, you don't have to speculate on that. Uh, we have in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, this is pictured in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Feast of First Fruits, and he's that wave offering. Um, you know what's interesting? Uh, Leonard Sheldrake in, uh, in his book talks about, um, talks about the the uh, the physical events around the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Now, hey, there's some speculation for sure, but um, you know he's certainly using a spiritual imagination to work through these things. And so, whatever else we know, we know this that um, hey, that many of those priests who served in the temple, you know what they'd never seen? They'd never seen the holy place. They'd never been in there. They'd had no access to it. They were never invited into it, right? That's a fact. Until when? Well, until the cross of the Lord Jesus. Because actually, when the Lord Jesus Christ bowed his head and gave up his spirit, which we read in Matthew chapter 27 yesterday, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from top to bottom. They could actually see in to the holy place. And now he says he doesn't know what they did, uh, uh, whether they turned their eyes away or, or what, but... He says this, and so take it for what it's worth. He says that with the angle and the altitude of the temple and the way in which the windows were configured, that those who were standing outside the holy place when the veil was rent, they could see through to the north of the city, to the north of the city wall, and they would be able to see Mount Calvary on the north of the city wall. Say, well, I don't know if that's true. Uh, but, you know, actually, you know, he uses a verse. Uh, he uses a verse from Genesis chapter 22, and in Genesis chapter 22, it says this, in the day of the Lord on the mount it will be seen. That's basically what the verse means, that it would be seen on that day on the mount. And he said he actually believed that, was that, that prophecy was physically fulfilled. You say, well, we're not sure about that, but we know many of the prophecies were physically fulfilled, right? In fact, the Lord Jesus at certain points did things so that those prophecies uh, would be fulfilled. And so the Feast of First Fruits uh, fulfilled at the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, the next feast, and so we have, okay, so make, here we got the number one is the Passover. Uh, number two is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Number three is the um, Feast of First Fruits. Number four, uh, verse 15, And you shall count for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, seven Sabbaths shall be completed. Count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath, and you shall offer a new grain offering to the Lord. You shall bring from your dwelling from your dwellings two wave loaves of two tenths of an ephah. They shall be a fine flour. They shall be baked with leaven. They are the first fruits to the Lord. And you shall offer with the bread seven lambs of the first year without blemish, one young bull and two rams. They shall be as a burnt offering to the Lord with their grain offering and their drink offerings, an offering made by fire for a sweet aroma to the Lord. Then you shall sacrifice one kid of the goats as a sin offering, two male lambs of the first year as a sacrifice of 
of a peace offering. The priest shall wave them with the bread of the first fruits as a wave offering before the Lord with the two lambs. They shall be holy to the Lord for the priest, and you shall proclaim on that same day that as his holy convocation, you shall do no customary work on it. It shall be a statue forever in all your generation or in all your dwellings throughout your generations. And so this is a feast that happens how many days later? Fifty. And so has this been fulfilled? Now, of course, some argue, well, not, not completely. We say, well, fair enough, maybe not completely. That's, uh, that's a view uh, that, that seems, seems valid enough, but um, more than partially. The Feast of Pentecost was fulfilled in Acts chapter 2. Actually, here it's two loaves, and um, it's two loaves that you notice that were, were brought together. And, and what is the significance of the New Testament church? Well, what, what's, the, what's the point? You know, sometimes, um, sometimes people say, well, you know what makes the church unique from, from the Old Testament is that um, we're born again. You know, we thought about that yesterday. Uh, say, you know, that's what makes the church unique is we're born again believers. Say, well, that's not exactly 100% true. Yes, we trust we're born again believers, but um, hey, Abraham, was Abraham born again? Absolutely. Of course he was born again. Hey, remember remember when the Lord Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, they still don't know about the church. There's been an allusion to the church in, in Matthew, but um, they still don't know about the church. Nicodemus doesn't know about that, but the Lord Jesus is challenging uh, Nicodemus on, on being born again because it's an Old Testament doctrine, right? It was taught in the Old Testament. How long have people been born, had, had to be born again? Well, ever since Adam. Adam needed to be regenerated. He needed to be born from above. And that's why when Paul thinks about it, being born again, he can go right back to creation, to Genesis 1, to prove this point of the need to be reborn. And so, um, hey, uh, Abraham is the example that Paul uses as the prototype Christian in the book of Romans. Why? Because he was born again. How did it happen? You know, this is sometimes what people say. Well, um, if Old Testament believers are born again, uh, how are they born again? I'm going to say, well, uh, Ephesians 2, for by grace through faith, not of themselves. It's the gift of God, right? And so uh, that's not what makes the church distinct. I'll tell you what makes the church distinct is that God was able to break down this middle wall of partition, and he was able to bring these two, a picture here, these two loaves together, Jew and Gentile brought into one body, right? And so... Uh, hey, Paul, he, he was aware of this, you know, as he works through uh, the great message of the gospel in the book of Romans, this treatise on the gospel. Uh, he knows that it's not apart from Israel. That's why he can come to Romans 9, 10, and 11, and he can talk about, uh, in Romans 9, he can talk about uh, God's dealing with Israel in the past. Uh, in Romans 10, he can talk about God's dealing with Israel in the present. And then in Romans chapter 11, he can talk about God's dealing with Israel yet future. You know, so when we think of the great gospel verses of the book of Romans, they're in Romans chapter 10. Well, that's God's present dealing with Israel. And so uh, we say, why are these such great gospel verses? Well, because God is saving Jew and Gentile right now in exactly the same way, right? So that's why we can use uh, Romans 10. And so... Um, um, Pentecost, that's the number four, right? So we have uh, the Passover, we have the Feast of Unleavened Bread, 
Uh, we have the Feast of First Fruits. We have the Feast of Pentecost. Now, all these four have been fulfilled. Then, uh, verse 22, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall wholly reap the corners of your field when you reap, nor shall you gather any gleaning from your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and the stranger. I am the Lord your God. And so uh, now comes this break, and it's the time of the harvest. And it would suggest to you that that's the age in which we live. We live in the age of the harvest. Say, well, uh, where's that happening? Hey, make no mistake about it. It is happening. May not be happening uh, in in my neighborhood, uh, although we know God is working, but it is happening in the world. Hey, God is saving people today. You know, uh, you've heard it said, uh, and we believe it to be true that hey, it's like Pentecost every day in China. Hey, thousands come to Christ every day in some of these other countries. You know, um, uh, I like to share a story. You know, the assemblies in our part of the world. Uh, uh, you know, they struggle, struggle numerically. Hey, go to a place like India. Hey, are there assemblies in India? Absolutely there are assemblies in India. Uh, hey, we're grateful. We're grateful for the Apostle Paul because the Apostle Paul came west, okay? But, um, you know, he wasn't the only apostle. Hey, if you go to India, who's their favorite apostle? Brother, who's... Thomas, they love Thomas. Why? Well, because Thomas went to India. He went east. And, um, you know, I've been, uh, uh, been to Chennai and been to the uh, basement of a Catholic church in the, in the city of Madras, and, and they say they have Thomas's body in a casket down there. I'm not sure if they do or not. And, uh, and so they would like us to believe that Thomas, Thomas came to India and was establishing Catholic churches, and we say we reject that idea. What Thomas was establishing was New Testament churches. You know, Ravi Zacharias says that, um, or said, because uh, he's with Thomas now, uh, said that, um, you know, in John chapter 6, you remember the statement of the Lord Jesus when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. Who was that said to? They say, well, that said to us. They say, well, praise the Lord for that, right? We like that. Um, you know that um, they tell us that uh, Billy Graham at the inauguration prayer of Bill Clinton, they said to uh, Billy Graham, you can, you can pray or we invite you to pray at, at um, Mr. Clinton's inauguration, but you can't pray in the name of Jesus. And so he agreed to, Billy Graham apparently agreed to, and he closed his prayer with, and we pray in the name of the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Amen. And so we're pretty sure he knew who, uh, uh, everybody knew who he was talking about. And so uh, that statement was said to Thomas. It was Thomas who asked the question. Remember that? And so the Lord Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and life. So uh, Brother Ravi said, uh, can you imagine being given that message by the Lord Jesus and then sent to a country that has more than 330 million deities? He said the wonder is not that he was killed, but that it took so long for them to get him. Hey, he had years there of establishing uh, New Testament churches. And so the time of the harvest, hey, you go to India now? I have some friends there in 
And hey, they're under heavy persecution. They're under lockdown too. But hey, the churches are, are thriving still and people are still coming to the Lord Jesus. You know, um, uh, my friends say that, hey, it's a Hindu government in India. It's the Hindu government that tells you that, that born again Christians in India are less than 2%. He said, that's not true. He said, it's way more than that. Uh, of course, they just don't want uh, people to know that uh, people are turning away from Hinduism and turning to Jesus Christ. So the time of the harvest, we live in that. Um, the Lord Jesus said, or, or sorry, uh, it's recorded here that um, you shall not wholly reap the corners of your field when you reap, nor shall you gather any gleaning from your harvest. You shall leave from, for the poor and the stranger. And so this idea that, that uh, there was that which was left for those on the outside to be a blessing to the world. We say that's, that's the message of the gospel to the Gentiles. We see that. So then the next feast, number five, after this break is the Feast of Trumpets, verse 23. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the children of Israel in the seventh month. On the first day of the month you shall have a Sabbath rest, a memorial blowing of trumpets. And so you see this period uh, the first feast in the spring, and now this is in the fall. Then this uh, number six, number six is the um, day of atonement, um, yet not yet having been fulfilled. Uh, and then number seven, the other seven-day feast, is in verse uh, 33. And it says, Then the Lord spoke uh, to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, The fifteenth day of this seventh month shall be the feast of tabernacles, for seven days uh, to the Lord. On the first day there shall be a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it. For seven days you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. On the eighth day you shall have a holy convocation and you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. It is a sacred assembly. You shall do no customary work on So which, what began at the beginning as corporate gathering of the Lord's people ends with corporate gathering, the value of corporate worship. Uh, so seven feasts, the Feast of Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of First Fruits, the Feast of Pentecost, then this break, this time of harvest, right? And then, um, then the uh, Feast of uh, Trumpets, then the Day of Atonement, and then lastly, the other seven-day feast, uh, the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, at, we'll have our break, and then um, after the break, we'll continue on but in a little different uh, way on this subject. So let's close with a word of prayer and then have a break. Father, we're uh, grateful for your word. We, we do ask, for again, for spiritual understanding to work through these things and to um, uh, be encouraged and built up in our faith, equipped, Father, for the ministries that you would have us to do. Uh, now, Father, thank you for your people. Thank you for the fellowship of your people. Uh, we pray in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.